Hello and welcome to JudgeCast. This is Sean Ketanese, Level 2 from Sacramento, California. And Ricky Hayashi. I ran 11 miles today. So you're pretty tired and worn out. And... My knees hurt a little. Okay. And you're running 11 miles to prepare for what? Half marathon. Next Half weekend. Marathon. In Oakland, right? In Oakland. Okay. Well, that works because next weekend I'll be down in the Bay Area seeing some family stuff. Right, and we're going to try to meet up with Toby Elliott, level five, one of four in the world. See if we can't interview him, talk to him a little bit about what he does and some other interesting rules-oriented stuff. What does he do? Well, he certifies judges, for one. He certified you, and he certified me. <laughs> yeah, that was a long time ago. <laughs> That's right. These days, Toby is known as the IPG guy, the infraction procedure guy. He's one of the primary movers behind it. Mm-hmm. And a new version was just put out. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that, Ricky. Yes, it was. I'm good at SEGS. Right. So, published on March 20th, and there are three big changes to this. Do you know what they are, Ricky? No, because I, I have more than that listed. <laughs> so, you <laughs> no. have to tell, tell me what the major, yeah, quote okay. unquote, major changes well, are. The ones that they actually list in the appendix where they say changes from previous versions. Oh, okay. Those changes. Um, when we used to have something called insufficient randomization, uh, it's now insufficient shuffling. Which, which is odd. Right? It sounds a little weird. Uh, I think this will be somewhat like the battlefield tech, you know, terminology where we well, have to... No, it's, uh, it's odd to me because they, they changed it to apply to when you shuffle your deck or a portion of it. Sure. I.e. cascade. Right. But cascade does not tell you to shuffle. It tells you to randomize. Because oh, it, it, the shuffling so. refers to shuffling your deck. So uh-huh. it, it's weird that they changed the name of the penalty as they added something that isn't technically shuffling. I mean, right. by magic terms, by regular people terms, yeah, you're shuffling the cards. Sure, sure. Well, the other cool thing about insufficient shuffling now is that it's no longer the game loss that it used to be. Well, why is that cool? Well, it means that we don't have to ruin people's days like we used to. I mean, sometimes I kind of wish I could, but really it's, it's, I think, better for players to know that insufficient shuffling is a warning. Um, that also means, though, that you know, if you're, you're more likely to think that, well, if somebody is you know, not shuffling enough in order to gain an advantage, we move more easily, I think, into the manipulation of game materials, cheating, and DQ stuff. So I think it delineates the two pretty pretty clearly for us now by only being a warning and, and really understanding that it's just when you don't shuffle enough and you don't intend to not shuffle enough. We can we can kind of you know I don't know if it makes it easier. That well, that type of investigation is always difficult. That's true. That's true. So there's insufficient shuffling, that's one of our changes. The other well, ones? Well, let's, I just want to say one of the important things about it being a warning, I feel, is that a lot of judges didn't want to enforce the game loss. Mm. I think that's one of the reasons this has changed. I see. Is that there were some judges that flat out basically defied the IPG and instead of issuing a game loss would say, hey, can you shuffle a little bit more, please? Right. Which is what's going to happen now, what we're allowed to do. Sure, sure. But when you have policy that judges have difficulty enforcing, I think you take a look at the policy. Right, right. And say, why, you know, why aren't we doing this? Well, and it is actually uh, worth noting here that now that you're on the warning track, um, insufficient shuffling is still where insufficient randomization used to be in tournament errors. 
So that upgrade path is warning game loss. Like, yeah, competitive. Well, at any level, actually. Right, but it's not that you get two warnings before, like with, like if you have a game, uh, a gameplay error in that class of violation. Uh, that's a very different sort of thing. So, ironically, it could lead to more game losses, you're saying, because judges will be willing to right, they'll, they'll move look- in and say, hey, you didn't shuffle enough, right. give the warning the first time, and then... If they give it the second time, they'll say, have you received this infraction before? The player will say, yes. Right. And, and then, then it'll get upgraded. Well, and I think it's something that we as judges should remember to do with this new policy here, or with this new change, is that when we do give an insufficient, insufficient shuffling warning, we should mention right away that your next one will be upgraded to a game loss. Because... We often don't do that for gameplay errors. When we give them that warning, we say, you know, well, if you do it really again. Do, I, don't, I don't think I really do that. I think it's probably a good customer service thing to do. It really drives the point home and we'll probably end up giving out fewer game losses if See, we do that. See, that, that to me is kind of, that's what causes people to be afraid of judges, etc. My, my thing is I would just say, look, I'm giving you a warning. You need to shuffle more sufficiently and then maybe describe that they need to do two different types of shuffles, etc. Sure, sure. Make sure you riffle shuffle so many times after you do a pile. Uh-huh. Well, I think like, it's... I, I've always been more education rather than, if you keep doing this, you're going to be in big trouble, young man. Well, but at the same time, we need to make sure that they understand that the next time they do it, it will be a game loss. Because if they don't, they're going to get blindsided by that if they think, oh, well, last time it was just a warning. And, you know, I'm glad it's not a game loss anymore, but... I think people need to know that because I think this will happen more commonly than a lot of the other tournament errors that get repeated and upgraded, um, it's probably a good good thing to note that this this one with repeats gets upgraded because they're more likely to repeat it, I think. Hmm. So it's a... We'll, we'll beg to differ. Okay. Well, What's we'll, our second, quote-unquote, major change? Well, the second of the major changes that I wanted to cover for the MIPG is that failure to reveal requires that the reveal was necessary to demonstrate that the play was legal. Huh? Okay. So, so okay, let's describe failure to reveal real quick to people. Okay, failure to reveal is a gameplay error uh, that results in a game loss at the competitive REL. So it's, it's serious. Very serious. Um, and an example of that would be something to the effect of... Uh, Enlightened Tutor, where you can go search your library for an artifact or enchantment and put it on top. Mm-hmm. Um, if you do that and don't reveal it, technically you're failing to reveal. Sure. Uh, but that one carries a prescribed downgrade possibility. Right, because you can uniquely identify the card. Yeah, you say, look, you failed to reveal, but since it's still on the top of your library, it just shows a right. dang card. Now, on the other hand, if that card was Idyllic Tutor... And you're and looking into your hand, right? Looking for an enchantment, putting it into your hand. Then, if you it's, fail to reveal it, then it's pretty important. Yeah. The other major one would be the morph, face down creatures. Oh, right, face down creatures. Uh, Whenever the face down creature changes zones, or if the game ends, you have mm-hmm. to show that it was it had morph. Right, that you weren't attacking with your face down forest the whole game that you know wins it for you. Okay, so that's failure to reveal. Right. Uh, and, the, and this change means what? Well, it means that if 
yes, you didn't reveal, but it wasn't technically necessary to make sure that the play was legal. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, in our idyllic tutor example, well, you still need to make sure that it was legal for you to do that. So if you didn't reveal, then you would definitely still get your game loss for that yeah. because you have to show off that it was an enchantment for that to be a legal play. But for other instances where, for instance, uh, if you're drawing multiple cards at once and you have something that says play with the top card of your library that, revealed. That's the major reason this came about. Is If you have a vampire nocturnus mm-hmm. and the top card of your library is revealed and you play Mindspring, because mm-hmm. you're playing a Mindspring nocturnus deck, you play Mindspring for three. Mm-hmm. The rules state that each draw is treated as a draw a card. Sure. So instead of you drawing just three cards, you draw a card, draw a card, draw a card. Right. And you have to reveal each card because it's the new top card of your library. Right. Most players don't know this. Right. Or they forget. Yeah. Because they're drawing a whole bunch of cards in succession. So what happens is, or what did happen was that that was classified as failure to reveal if you just Mm -hmm. picked up three cards. Right. Now this That's kind of a sucky way to lose a game. Totally. Especially if you don't know. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So this has been clarified some. Now, the next question about this is that... Well, what if somebody does that now? Does their mind spring and just draws their three cards and doesn't reveal them? What have they done? Is there an infraction associated with that? I mean, they haven't played by the rules for that. They should have revealed those cards. Sounds like a game rule violation to me. There you go. Same here. I I completely agree with that call. Okay. So that's failure to reveal. That's one of the other major changes. Um, And now we've also got a new change to the philosophy of gameplay errors that allows us... Um, and this is, this is something that I actually am fully in favor of, and I really am glad they made this change. Um, and that well, is this, this debate mm-hmm. has been raging at least since Grand Prix Seattle last okay. year. This is like last June. Sure. Was the first time I became aware of it. And so I'm sure people have been talking about it beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is basically like, say with a, a howling mine, if I control a howling mine, Sean, and on your draw step, you only draw one card, so you don't draw for the Howling Mine. That's a missed trigger. Right. But it's your trigger that I'm missing. So in 90-some percent of the cases where a judge gets called over this, they would be giving you the missed trigger because you right. didn't draw a card. Right, because I should have been performing mine. that action. According to the IPG, that was completely wrong. Right, because it's your trigger. So it you says should whoever, be getting the yeah, it said whoever controlled the object that triggered. Mm-hmm. And it's my howling mind, so I'm responsible. Right. So all I would be getting is a failure to maintain game state because yeah. it's your trigger that's getting missed, not mine. Now, that's the old way of doing things. Now, if there's a difference in the person who's being affected by uh, an effect right. and the person who owns the source of so that effect. I control the Howling Mine, but you are physically drawing the card. Right. Then we both get a game rule violation, a warning for that. Miss Trigger. For, oh, sorry, for Miss Trigger for Howling Mine, but we'd both get a game rule violation in, uh, well, I can't come up with an example off the top of my head Path now. to Exile. Oh, that's if one I that always happens. If I to Exile happens. your creature, right. and you place it in the graveyard. We're both getting a game rule yeah. violation warning. I should be telling right. you, exile the creature, and you should be exiling the creature. Absolutely. So in that case, um, now we're both getting the warning for gameplay error, either GRV or Mistrigger or whatever that normal warning that the original only owner of the con- 
card or can effect would be getting. Yeah, because again, in Path to Exile, in the old way, mm-hmm. I would get the warning for game rule violation. Even though I'm path. the one, even though I'm the one that didn't exile the creature. Yeah. So this way, this way, it, we're also going to cut down extremely on the number of failure to maintain game state. I think that we we give out. Um, it, it just makes it so that it's what we think it should be. Right. Because, like I said, most judges didn't know this. This number one. Mm-hmm. You know, like I ran the experiment where I played the open the vault stack with howling mines, and I had several instances where I had to call a judge because my opponent didn't draw for howling mines. Right. And all those missed triggers, you didn't. Uh, no. You didn't get a game loss upgrade. No. Yeah. And so. then even judges who do know it. Again, like just like the insufficient randomization, I think just kind of went with that. You know, that, that doesn't, doesn't really make right. sense. Yeah, yeah. Now, I wonder about the uh, implications of this, uh, and this is what we talked about earlier with the insufficient shuffling. Whether we're going to get more upgrades now too, because all those things that were FTMGS failed to maintain game state are now being turned into warnings for things that are on the upgrade path. So you're going to be giving out more GRV warnings, more missed trigger warnings. I think judges are going to need to be careful to ask. Mm-hmm. And the problem is right now a lot of judges ask, you know, have you received an infraction for this previously? Right. Like if it's a howling mine missed trigger. Right, for howling mine. But now it's going to be Any have miss- you right. Any mistrigger at all. Yours or, or your opponent's. Or any game rule violation at all. I mean, that's a pretty broad spectrum of things that can go wrong. I, yeah. I would. Yeah, ju- really so judges need to stop asking, have you received an infraction for this? And just say, have you received an infraction for a game rule violation? Well, and so probably, we need to communicate more clearly with players what infraction they're receiving. And it's probably even better to just say, have you gotten any other warnings in the tournament so Probably, far? Yeah. And then figure out from their responses, are those mistrigger warnings? Are those game of violations? And double check with the scorekeeper right, if you right. need to, if they, if they give you a bunch of things that they've done. So that may make things a little bit more complex, but I think overall that's the right, right way to do it. So, okay, those are the three ones that are identified in the appendix for the new IPG. Uh-huh. What are the other changes you wanted to talk about? Well, I've got improper draw at the start of the game. Okay. This is just a clarification. Um, this infraction is for if you say mulligan to six and drew seven. Right. Um, the the clarification is that it says if the game has not begun, mm-hmm. then you would uh, randomly select two cards right. from your hand and shuffle them back into your library. Mm-hmm. So it's essentially a forced mulligan, right? You've got right. seven when you have six, so you're taking two away down to five. Right, but instead of making them shuffle everything all together and draw another hand, you're just taking yeah. the cards right out of the hand. Now, the clarification is, if the game has already begun, mm-hmm. you take those two random cards and you put them on top of the library. Because he's decided to keep that hand. Yeah. So that's that's why those cards wouldn't... wouldn't and it's kind there. of a rare corner case. I think it did come up once, and it mm-hmm. was discussed. Right. Like, what do you do? It's it's rare because you have it has to be improper draw at the start of the game. Mm-hmm. But somehow, after the game has started, you discover it. Right, and it would be something like, um, you know, my opponent is on the play, I'm on the draw, and I draw my cards, and I don't realize it until I'm counting up my cards for that first turn yeah, of the game. something ha- like maybe turn one thought sees, and then like, hey, didn't you mulligan to six? Like, right. How come you got seven cards? Right. Okay, well, that's, um, that's worthwhile noting. The other... Clarification was on outside assistance, uh-huh. notes being on cards. Right, right. So um, 
some of the wording that's been clarified is it says minor strategic info or, or hints are okay. Right. So, so your drawing your uh, Dark Steel Colossus on your tinker yeah. is okay. I mean, as long as it's meant and, to be an artistic and the main thing it says is no, no detailed instructions or complex strategic advice. So not writing the entire Revelart combo on the Revelart. Right. And this came up in discussion because a player, I think in the main event of Pro Tour San Diego, had um, missed some optional triggers, May triggers. And because he missed it, he like underlined the word May on his card and might have even written May in bigger letters in the art of the card so that he would remember. Mm-hmm. And so there's discussion about, you know, is this outside assistance? Right, right. And so this clarifies that it isn't. Okay. It's, it's a minor strategic info or a hint. It's not a detailed instruction on how to carry out the, the okay. combo or how to use this card. It's just... Hey, it's a May trigger. Don't forget. I have a feeling that that clarification will lead to many more Bloodseekers being totally defaced in <laughs> drafts. May. <laughs> right. And if you're in doubt about whether your your modification on the card you know, crosses this line of a detailed instruction or strategic advice, mm-hmm. always refer to your head judge of your individual tournament. Right, because the head judge has complete control over whether or not modifications are mm-hmm. acceptable or not. Okay. Any other changes you want to talk about in the MIPG? No. It's the IPG, isn't it? So didn't we take the M off? I thought we added the M to it. Oh. Because it, it, it only applies to magic. Let me just uh, go to the top of the document here, and we can verify once and for all here. Uh, I will always affectionately refer to them as deck warband errors. <laughs> those miniature games that were clumped into the... Penalties. That's right. It actually is at the very top. It says Magic TM Infraction Procedure Guide. So it's not. So the, it's actually the Midum IPG. Yes, the the Midum IPG. Yes. Okay. Well, good. Thank you very much for clarifying for us. And I guess one other thing we wanted to talk about today um, was. A new policy from Wizards. Um, they new policy from Wizards. On that always makes me nervous. Oh yeah. Well, I think we always look forward to the MIPG though, the updates to the tournament rules, those sorts of things. Um, but yeah, but that's not from Wizards. Oh, you're right. That's from DCI. That's from you know other other folks. Well, when Wizards has a, this, only affects judges sort of in a tangential way, but it's worth noting at least. And wanted to talk about it a little bit. I don't think I've even said it yet. Well, the reprint policy. Oh, God. Okay. This well, thing has been raging back and forth for, what, weeks, months? Tons and tons of months, yes. Many, many, many and opinions. The, yeah, the threads and forums or in response to articles always blow up. Right. I, I, I don't even want to talk about it. But you have something to say. So well, much. I just wanted to note that it's really, really cool to know a little bit ahead of time that judges sometime in this year... Uh, we'll be getting thawing glaciers as a foil because that's not exciting at all. Okay, maybe not, but um, I think Morphling is pretty exciting. I mean, granted, post M10 rules, combat rules, it's probably not as exciting as it used to be. I had already taken Morphling out of my EDH decks even before M10 rules. So. Well, one other thing I want to note is that I'm hoping that it's uh, still RK post art on there somehow. Uh, maybe they had him redo probably. it somehow or. Because he had some well, pretty I think epic it's going to be the original art. Okay. 
just like the. I mean, I asked a few people about this, and the policy seems to be that if the card is pre-foil, mm-hmm. like if it's never been foiled before, they try to use the original art. If there are no legal restrictions on using the art. Oh, I see. Okay. So that's why the the two foils we got from San Diego, or should get in some of our <laughs> cases, I haven't gotten mine yet. Oh come on! I, I got Natural my, Order and Pyrexian Dreadnought. Right, I got my the original art. I got my four Dreadnoughts on either Thursday or Friday via FedEx. Thank you, Andy. Thanks, Andy. I, I live only like twenty miles <laughs> away from Sean, and yet somehow. Well, they're doing it alphabetically. C comes before H. That's what it is. Uh huh. Or that could uh, that could be the case because two other judges were uh, Beertonen and Shaw have not received their foils yet. Okay, well, see, there you go. That's that's the well, whole explanation. H is much, much higher up. Well, there you go. Yours can hit eBay before Johanna's or or Adams. There you are. I'm probably just gonna local players. Right. Exactly. Those are the ones that care. So. <clears throat> Also, one other judge foil in the works for us, and this one I'm really excited about, is Wheel of Fortune. Okay, so Thawing Glaciers, Morphling, Wheel of Fortune. And Frexian Dreadnought, too. That was one of the ones okay. they mentioned is on the reserve list, but being reprinted for the I judge mean, foils. Wheel of Fortune, does it, get, does it see play in Vintage? I don't care about Vintage. I care about my EDH deck. Okay. Crash, my Crash the Bloodbraided EDH deck, I, I have been searching for some way to get a fancy Wheel of Fortune in there. No, I, I think I only have six cards in there that aren't either foiled or foreign or okay. some other other coolness to them. And uh, now I'll be able to say that Wheel of Fortune is it's in there with with pride and it's it's foiled. Assuming that you know, judge one of these big events later on in the year. So hopefully that'll happen. <clears throat> yeah, I hope I get to something. <laughs> you hope. I, I'm pretty sure people can expect you at. Actually, I'm going to miss. Pro Tour San Juan. What? Yeah, and Grand Prix uh, Washington, D.C. the week before. Wow. Yeah. Are you, are you bequeathing some sort of amazing lead you have to Nick Fong now? Or? I've already he, he missed San Diego. Okay, so you, you've got a comfortable lead then. Well, no, that it's over. Oh, I see, because you already beat him in that list. So, okay, then you're yeah. set. Okay, okay. <sighs> well, that's good to know. So instead of the instead of those, I'm probably going to go to three Star City events around the time: um, Atlanta, St. Louis, and Seattle. Oh wow, that's and pretty Seattle. awesome! Yeah. I'm actually thinking about going up to Seattle also. So I might play in Seattle. I don't know. Okay. Because you know it's Seattle. It's Watsi headquarters, right? And they've got way too many judges up there, right? So I don't know that I would bring much to that staff. I'm hoping to I'm hoping to judge that one, but we'll see. Yeah, yeah. So we have a bunch of listener questions. I wanted to move on to our mailbag here. Do you want to do our mailbag jingle? Okay. You've got mail. Great. Okay. Awkward pause. Um, so, <clears throat> Ricky, we have um, emails here from a bunch of different listeners, and if you want to be included in the emails here, you can be uh, included by sending us an email. Where can they send it, Ricky? Judgecast at gmail.com. Fantastic. And now there's also one other place they can send their questions for us. Okay. That's on Facebook. If you look for Judgecast on Facebook, huh. you will be able to find it, and you will be able to see this sort of some very simplistic logo on there um, <laughs> that I just kind of threw together. Um, 
and it's, I kind of like the banner that they have on Mana Nation. Right, because it's got our two judge judge uh, center profiles or pictures on well, there. Well, we should get that changed. Yeah. Well, because it uses like my black mana symbol angry photo, right? Right, right, right. And you're the one that keeps it fun. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> and you're, you're got, you have the smiling photo. I'm like, this is the opposite of what we tell people. Right, right. Although maybe that's what we want to do. Okay. Well, Because we'll I'm f- contrarian that. We'll find uh, uh, so on Facebook. On Facebook, Judge Cast. Look I'm not there. even friends with myself or whatever. Right. Well, you you will be later tonight. I hope friends of Judge Cast. So hopefully, go on to Facebook. Um, you can become a fan of us there. We'll also let you know. Oh, is it fan or friend? Fan. I think because we're not a person. Okay. That we we have fans instead of friends. But um, if you do that, then. You'll be the first to know when you know when we have a new episode posted, oh, or if we good, have. Because I always forget to do that. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm yeah posted. So whenever those get posted, we'll let you know. So on to more questions from Alex Smithers. Really, Smithers? That's his name. Excellent, Smithers. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm really sorry, Alex. I probably shouldn't have put your last name in there. Well, too late. So. Or maybe I'll just cut that out later. No, I won't. <laughs> he says he loves the podcast. I was wondering if you have Magosi the Water Veil in play untapped and cast a Slaughter Pact, can you then tap Magosi, skip your next turn, thus skipping your next upkeep, meaning you never have to pay for the pact? Well, Rick? No. Why not? Um, because... Your next upkeep is literally your next upkeep. It's right. not your upkeep next turn. Mm-hmm. It's whenever you get another upkeep step. Right. And the rule specifically that we were looking for here is rule 614.10. Why you got to trump me with the rules? <laughs> well, because I looked it up earlier. Oh. But um, it's a, the, the rule actually says anything scheduled for a skipped step, phase, or turn won't happen. Anything scheduled for the next occurrence of something waits for the first occurrence that isn't skipped. So when he's using say scheduled, that's kind of cool. It does say scheduled. I'm going to schedule something for next turn. (laughs) Right. Break out your little planners and stuff. So when Magosi, uh, well, if you're playing EDH, sometimes your next turn's like 20 minutes away. So like, remember to do this on my next turn. Right. Right. Well, so so don't forget to win the game. Or lose it in the case of Inari. Yeah. yeah. Well, with a pact, right. yeah, you want to remember. Right. So, uh, yeah. Oh, we, yeah, because if you, like, that one time sifter game we played. Oh, that was terrible. You might forget you had a pact trigger. <laughs> right. It's like 20 turns <laughs> since you had one. Right. Well, the, hopefully the rest of the table will forget also, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, when you're using Magosi to skip your next turn, the pact triggers are just going to wait around for your next. How do you update. handle a turn cycle when you go out of order turns? Ooh, that's a good question, Ricky. How do you do that? I don't know. <laughs> okay, well, we're going to have to think we'll, about that yeah, a little we'll bit more. We'll think about it. I, it just occurred to me, like, what, how would we do a missed trigger if you have, like, five people taking turns at a sequence? Well, luckily, we don't play a whole lot of multiplayer, you know, yeah. five or six people taking various turns. Um, but this in, is a way maybe someone could make a, a niche for themselves. Mm-hmm. Applying the, the MIPG to multiplayer EDA. Oh, that could be awesome. 
Okay. Well, let's. Uh, this is actually a real simple question. Um, dealing with card from Worldwake. Last time you said that, it was really hard. This one actually is pretty easy. If I have an Abyssal Persecutor in play, and my opponent has an Abyssal Persecutor in play, we're both we both go to zero life um, on my turn because of an earthquake. Boom. What happens? It looks like I'm at zero life. I should be losing the game. My opponent is at zero life. Well, he should also be losing the game. So if we both should be losing the game, shouldn't it be a draw? But neither of us can lose the game because we both have our opponents controlling mm-hmm. an Abyssal Persecutor. And this question, I should say, comes from a guy that wishes to be known as Rob Stompy. <laughs> is that supposed to be like Rob Zombie? Rob Stompy is all one word, um, and it's, yeah, um, I love our listeners. That's awesome. Okay, continue, though. Rob Stompy. Okay, Rob Stompy. Uh, nothing happens. Why does nothing happen? Being. So we just sit there with sit there looking yeah, at each other like, at zero life. It's like Platinum Angels. Okay. Dueling just, Platinum Angels yeah. and dueling Abyssal Persecutors, basically. It's basically the same. Like, okay. It's not that complicated. Well, what if after... So we, we just sit here at zero life. Neither of us can lose. Yeah. What if I attack, your, I attack you and you block with yours? Both of them die. Then what happens? Then it's a draw. Because we both yeah. lose at the same time. Sure. Okay. Great. I got a I got a follow up for you. Uh oh. If I have an immortal coil, you know what that is? It's a terrible card, I know yeah. that much. Pat Chapin played it in his sideboard at Worlds. I think an extended dredge. It has, wow. it's one of those like lich type cards, except it depends on your graveyard. Right, right. So cards when in you your take graveyard. damage you remove cards or something. Okay, anyway. But the you the have important one of those. part is uh, when, when your graveyard is empty, or when there are no cards in your graveyard, you lose the game. Okay. So continue. So I have this, mm-hmm. and uh, you have Abyssal Persecutor. So I can't lose the game. My, if my graveyard goes empty, mm-hmm. what happens? I can't lose the game, so I can't lose the game. Uh-huh. So I don't lose the game. Right. Is that your final answer? I haven't seen Immortal Coil. Let me read Immortal Coil here. You have that Jeopardy song still? I gave you the pertinent text. Well, let me actually read the damn thing. Hold on. All right. So in the meantime, I'm going to talk about my last weekend. Oh, God. I was in uh, Indianapolis for the Star City Games Open, and it was pretty amazing. There were, I believe the final tally was 667 players for standard. I didn't even get the number for Legacy on Sunday. It was like 280 something maybe both were records uh for the star city events and it was a lot of fun it was a lot of work and the the biggest problem was that on saturday night we finished the top eight at 2 30 and then because of daylight savings it immediately became 3 30 okay that was was just that was great jeopardy music thank you ricky for that great interlude actually it's important that i looked up the card because as i'm looking at it right now i actually understand what this weird thing is oh um the weird thing let me make sure here i haven't stopped recording so pro tip for all you judges don't do two-day events at daylight savings time because it'll kick you in the butt Uh aha except that when you do the uh the fall back one toward the end of the uh you that you'd actually prefer to do that right because that way you gain an hour over that weekend yeah but when i have that have i just prefer to gain the hour and sleep for a really long time okay i mean still having to get up at 7 a.m or whatever just because it's suddenly 8 a.m doesn't make it that much that much more appealing okay 
Well, now the reason immortal coil matters in this situation is because it has what's called a state trigger. Oh. Where basically, when there are no cards in your graveyard, you lose the game. Yeah. And the next time a player would receive priority, it triggers again and says, well, now you lose the game. Yeah. And then but you, you don't, but you can't. And then it says, well, okay, now you lose the game. Yeah. But you can't. And it continues to do this. And so it, now it, the game enters this infinite loop where nothing can break this uh-huh. and it's a draw. Yeah. And so that's actually, you can that's, break it by getting a card in your graveyard or right. removing a Pistol Persecutor or removing a Mortal Coil. Right. Now that's just because I had to actually read the card here to understand what you were saying because I sometimes I just can't understand you, Ricky. But okay. Now, now having having read the card itself. So yeah, yes, I used to I used to ask this question and used to being up until last weekend mm. with Platinum Angel and uh, Dark Steel Reactor. Oh right, because you win the game, you win the game, yeah. you win the game. Same but, idea. But since these cards are both in standard, I figure I should update my question okay. in order to test people's knowledge. Okay. Well, let's move on to our next question here. Okay. Our next question is another pretty simple one. We'll start off with a simple one here. Um, comes to us from Brian. And let's see here. Brian is from... Brian's from Massachusetts, and he has uh, this question for us. Player one has a Trinisphere and a Chalice of the Void and play with one counter on it. Player two plays Repeal, targeting Chalice of the Void with X equals zero, but pays a blue, a colorless, and a colorless for the spell because of Trinisphere's effect. What happens? You're SOL, Brian. Sorry. Yeah, the uh, Repeal does not work that work out and uh you know bounce that chalice of the void even though you did pay three for it um it's converted mana cost while it's on the stack because x equals zero converted mana cost is just one uh the reason that is it gets countered by chalice right gets countered by chalice uh let me just cover the the relative rules for you here um rule 202.3 in the comp rules says the converted mana cost of an object is equal to the total amount of mana in its mana cost regardless of color and 202.3b, when calculating the converted mana cost of an object with X in its mana cost, X is treated as zero while the object is, is not on the stack and is treated as the number chosen for it when it is on the stack. So in this case, X is zero either way, though repeal can't really be in play or anywhere else, but guess in your hand. So the last bit that matters to this is 116.8c, and that is... Additional costs don't change a spell's mana cost, only what its controller has to pay to cast it. So spells and abilities that ask for a spell's mana cost still see the original value. And this is for Trinisphere, Sphere of Resistance, paying additional costs like Kicker right. or Replicate. With that new golem that they made in World Wake makes yeah. everything cost yeah, more. Yeah. yeah. Ooh, wait a minute. We should pick some of those up because the next... Block is confirmed as Mirrodin. Scars of Mirrodin. Artifacts are going to be popular. Right. I think people have been going crazy over the the Stoneforge Mystic for that purpose, uh, hoping that there's going to be some cool equipment coming up in the next set. And I think people have also been going crazy a little bit for Thala Adele, the merfolk that we were talking about a couple of episodes ago, where she's the one that you get to go look for an artifact and Mm. pay it out of your opponent's library. So maybe that'll also be in there. Also... Mirrodin was printed initially before artifacts had colors in their mana costs. 
Yeah. So now that they do, I think it'll be really interesting to see how well, that. Do you takes think we'll shape. have more colored artifacts? Uh, yeah. Okay. In in the new Mirrodin set, definitely. definitely. Maybe even green and red. Ooh. Unlike well, the Esper, right? Esper was right. just three colors. Well, but there is a green and red artifact out there. What? Firewild Border Post. Oh. Yeah. I got you. There's probably other ones then, because that set was all color mixed up, right? Yeah, well, I mean... Isn't the Viachino guy, the blue-red one, an artifact? Like, you flip a coin and he gains flying or something? Maybe, I don't remember. Hmm. The other colored artifact out there? Painter's Servant. Painter's Servant can be a green oh, artifact. Oh, shut up. Okay. So... You could say that about the... <laughs> what is that guy that's like all colors or... Alloy Golem, you choose a color. That's right. There you go. You and your misformed ultimus type <laughs> exceptions. Okay, well, we have another question here from Brian also. Uh, he wants to know, how do Death Touch and Trample interact? If I have a two-power creature with Death Touch and Trample, and my opponent is at one and blocks with a two-toughness creature, what happens? You well, don't trample. You don't trample. Why don't you trample? Well, this is a problem I have. The... The reason is lethal damage, right? Mm-hmm. You have to assign lethal damage to blockers before you can trample. Sure. And the definition of that is you have to assign damage equal to the creature's toughness minus any damage it may have already taken that turn. Right. In this case, you have two power and two toughness, so you have to assign the two toughness to the guy. Mm-hmm. Death touch allows you to divide up damage. Like if you have two blockers, you can put one point on each one and death touch them both. Right. But it doesn't let you circumvent the lethal damage rule. I think right. lethal damage is kind of a misnomer that confuses people. Right, because they think the one point is lethal. It's going to kill it. Right. Something being killed by damage which would be lethal damage. So That's they, what people think it is. They need to change the term, I think. Right. And the actual uh, definition of lethal damage, in uh, it's actually in the uh, comp rules glossary. You find it back there. And even though it's not numbered in cute, fancy, you know, lawyerish language toward the end there, um, the glossary is still considered part of the comp rules and still part of the whole book of stuff that makes magic what it is. Um, in that glossary, lethal damage has a very specific meaning of equal to that creature's toughness, less any damage already marked on it. So, oh, I forgot to say marked. Right. That right. was one of the da- M10 changes. <laughs> right. Damage being marked on the creature. So again, that's uh, that's how you how you go. Hope that doesn't that. confuse people. Did you actually have to like draw on the card? Yeah, yeah. To like, you have to damage? mark the damage. Like, oh, really? Like, I have to draw on my Tarmogoyf? Darn. Mm, I don't think that's so much a problem. <laughs> okay. Well, come on. Like, we have people with the planeswalkers and the the loyalty thing, right? Well, sure, sure. And this lethal damage thing sure is confusing a lot of people because if you hang out on message boards, this. This type of question comes up, you know, like once a week. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's see. So here. maybe in the future we should brainstorm ideas for what the term lethal damage could be changed to. Right. Like going to kill your creature damage. How's that sound? No? I don't think that gets across the problem. Okay. It gets well, around the problem. Toughness total damage? I don't know. Total toughness damage? We'll, we'll find something. So... We have another question here from Jeffrey, or Jeff, I guess, not Jeffrey. He wants what to know. What else could it be? I guess it could be Jefferson. 
True, true. Well, in his email, his name is Jeffrey, but he signs his name Jeff, so I don't want to call him Jeffrey because he probably just wants to be known as Jeff. Okay. So, sorry, Jeff. Jeffrey. Yeah. Anyway, um, <clears throat> your question, Jeff, was – let me read through all your accolades you give us here to actually find the question. Here it is. I have my opponent locked under Iona Shields of Ameria and Painter's Servant, both naming the same color with their abilities. My opponent manages to cast a face-down shapeshifter, flipping it and choosing Iona, and kills off both Ionas with the legend rule. That'd be Vesuvian shapeshifter. Right, Vesuvian shapeshifter. One of my favorite cards. A lot of people's one of their favorite cards, right. I would imagine. It's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. So... The, he's wondering, does the word, colorless wording on Morph take priority over Painter's Servant somehow? And the reason he's asking us this question is because he says he, w- he was able to uh, have his opponent pull this off on MTGO. So he claims that it happened there. Um, my feeling is that it probably shouldn't have happened. That's what I thought. Yeah. Because the, the thing that says that's colorless when you cast the face down spell right should be a characteristic defining ability mm-hmm. i mean it's a, it, that it's colorless nameless and uh, right it's a whole list of things that define no what the morph is yeah so it does not sound like you should have been able to do that and, and uh, when you when you deal with two effects you know that's saying it's colorless and it's blue mm-hmm. in the same layer the color changing layer you apply the cda first so you say it's colorless, and then you apply the thing that says it's blue. So it's blue, so you can't cast it. Right. So we're going to have to um, – we're going to look into this a little bit further, maybe report this as a glitch to MTGO um, if you have the glitch reporting capabilities there. Again, I don't believe in virtual cardboard, so uh, people with an account – Oh, it exists, it. Sean. They're <sighs> out there. I hear that. I hear that. Okay. Uh, some people think that that's one of the reasons behind the reserve list. Policy. Oh, so they can print the cards on Magic Online and people will go there to get them instead? Yeah. I mean, I, I believe they recently announced that they were going to have Legacy as a format. Magic they have. Online, they have. Because they're getting pretty close to having all the cards. But, you know, I, if I want to play with the Tabernacle of Pendrel Veil, I want to play with a real Tabernacle of Pendrel Veil. I don't want to play with a picture of them going on a screen and some okay. pixels. I well, mean, I got just, one. Can I have it? No. Okay. Okay. Let's move on to our next question here. This is from Thomas. And Thomas, this is another one of those listeners that gives us two names, uh, Thomas or Tosis. Um, not sure which, but, but you're in Germany, and we want to thank you again for your... Oh, is this the guy who sent yeah. that? Okay. Yeah, are yeah, you going to play that, or are you going to insert that? Uh, well, I'll insert it later so people okay. can actually hear it, but let's pretend like we're listening to it for... It's about a minute long. It's it's actually our very first voice message from another listener, Yeah. where he's actually sent us this as an attachment, um, and here's his message. Hi, JudgeCast guys. This is Tozis in Germany, long-time listener, first-time caller. I really just wanted to be the first one to say that to you guys, since you wanted it so much. Uh, but I do actually have a legitimate question, and that is, I'm, I'm living in Germany, and in this particular part of Germany, there don't seem to be many magic events going on, and I'm having trouble finding a level 2 judge to help me uh, start me out on my road to being a judge. 
uh, I'm already a rules advisor and I'm having a good time at my local card shop, uh, host, uh, helping out with Friday Night Magics and so on. But I'd like to take that next step and I was just wondering what kind of resources were out there. I remember there used to be somewhere on the DCI website, uh, where you could look up local judges, but I can't seem to find that anymore. So if you could point me in the right direction, that would be very cool. Uh, love the show. Keep up the good work. It's always nice to hear about issues that judges face on a day-to-day basis and how they deal with them. And uh, also learn a little bit about the rules and, and so on. And uh, I look forward to hearing more from you guys. Keep up the good work. Bye-bye. And actually, you said many of the emails from this episode. Mm-hmm. Always said long-time listener, first-time caller. Yeah. Yeah. So now I feel like I'm on talk radio. Well, there you go. So thank you out there. Great. To all the listeners. Well, so, so what about Thomas's question, though? Well, since we didn't actually listen to it, <laughs> I don't remember what it was. <laughs> since you spliced it, it what, what was the question? The question is about uh, finding an L2 to mentor him uh, in his local area there in Germany. Right. Well, he doesn't tell us where in Germany. Right. Germany's kind of a big place. It's a whole country, you know, so... They used to be east and west. Right. So that's used, how big it was. It used to be two countries. That's that's pretty big. So, um, if when he's looking for this, where does he go? If you if you're, is there a place in the judge center? Is there? Does he just have to know kind of who the cool people are? Or? Judge judge center would be kind of hard to use for this because you'd put in Germany, right? And mm-hmm. I think they have like a hundred judges. Probably, probably. Um, but I guess you could just sift through the L two pluses. Right. You can put a filter on one. So that would just probably be the first two or three pages. Right. Now, I think and he's gone to the judge center and he still can't figure out how to work that out. Hmm. What, give, given that... You could go to uh, DCI Family. DCI Family. Now, in order to be a, a sign up there, though, don't you have to be a level one judge? No. No? You can be a level zero. Okay. Okay. So That just has to get approved. Ah, okay. So if you try signing up for DCI Family, maybe you can... And I think see what will happen level. is... He's he's passed as his rules advisor, right? Um, because I think that might be one of the things they look for. Right, is right. That, is they all these level zeros to approve them? They look them up on uh, DCIX to make sure they're real people. I guess. Right. They don't want us spamming everybody else. Yeah. Okay. And if you if you have if it says like rules advisor, that's obviously helpful. I guess. Okay. Otherwise, I. Without knowing what part of Germany, okay. it's hard to uh, point him in the right direction. Sure. I mean, I know many German judges. Most of them are in the West. Okay. Well, Thomas, when you do know, uh, when you do get in touch with us, and by all means, call us back here with um, hopefully another voice message. Although, <laughs> you telling us where, where in Germany you live probably is not cool enough for it to be on the, uh, on the next episode. Probably won't splice that message in, but we'll listen to it, definitely. But the other thing is, um, I mean, if you're going to go to any events... Mm -hmm. Approach the judges there, because judges generally try to be pretty approachable. Try to be open to new players coming up to us and saying, you know, how do I play the game? And also experienced players coming up to us and saying, how do I be a judge? Because the best way to find your local L2 Plus is just go to a PTQ and walk Mm -hmm. up to the head judge most likely be that person or will know the person that they should be in touch with. Yeah. And then if you go to a Grand Prix, it just gets loads easier. Right. Cause everyone will know everyone and they'll point you in the right direction. Sure. Sure. And that person might even be at the Grand Prix. Right. Right. It's pretty likely. So, uh, this might come out too late for Grand Prix Brussels, but 
We'll see. We'll, we'll try to get a quick turnaround here on the editing of the episode. Um, one other question uh, that Thomas asks is, at my local store, oftentimes when they do a draft or FNM or other event, they like to do what they call rare picking to combat money drafting. At the end of the event, they will collect all the rares drafted and lay them out on a table, and then, in order of final standings, they will let the participants choose from the rares. In other words, the first-place player will have first pick of one, then the second-place player, and so on, going around the list as many times as there are cards left. Um, And he says three times because, of course, in a draft you've got the three rares. My question is... Well, we we do foils, too. Right, we include foils. And, and, And that's a... Getting back to his question is, is this even legal from a DCI standpoint? I know it sure is annoying not to be able to rely on ending up with the cards you choose, especially when you do poorly or want to drop, as you may have to give up you know, your amazing cards for some pretty crappy ones. On the other hand, do you think it's that they have the right to do this to prevent players just taking the rares out of the packs and not contributing to the game? Love to hear your input. So, so you're familiar with this process, and so am I. Yes, we call it rare drafting normally here, drafting the rares at the end of the... Yeah, and if it's in a store, there will usually also be packs available as pickable prizes. So instead of taking a card, you could take you know, power pack. packs. Right, and oftentimes places will do this because they want to keep the cost of the draft low, where they can give out fewer packs as prizes or perhaps no packs as prizes. I know for a long time, uh, for my FNMs, we used to just only do the rares as the as the prizes, but it was like an eight dollar entry fee for a draft. My my impression is that people do this because they want to kind of preserve the sanctity of the draft. Right, that you're picking a card because it's good, not just because it's valuable. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, and I this don't, I don't really care. Well, and from from an official standpoint, granted, we're not official spokespeople of the DCI beyond our normal capacity as judges. But um, if we have seen this come up on the judge mailing list as a question, mm-hmm. um, and uh, Scott Marshall there backed it up and said, yes, this is a completely fine policy um, as long as you're in accordance with you know your local laws and as long as you're making sure that your customer service is at the heart of this and making sure your players have a good experience. That's, that's all that really matters. Yeah. So... Um, if you don't like this practice, though, if you have this practice happen in, in your local store, I don't like it. And if you well, <laughs> so what do you do about it? Talk to people. Try okay. to get it changed. I right. mean, the reason I don't like it because it wastes a heck of a lot of time. Mm-hmm. After the draft, it, it might take like another forty minutes to pick all these cards if you had like mm-hmm. twenty or thirty people. Well, when we draft at the end of my tournaments, normally what we do is we'd say. You know, okay, we'd call out your name, and if you're not standing, we'd lay out all the, all the cards on a table where everybody can stand around it and get easy access to it. And then we'd call out the names in the order listed, and I'd give them, you know, five seconds to pick their card because hopefully they're all standing around and they should know kind of what's in the draft, what the yeah, cards are. They should also have an idea, they've, you know, while all these other people have been picking their cards, how long, you know, they should have an idea of what cards they want. Yeah, the hemming and hawing and right. people not knowing what so, their pick know, is. It just takes way right, too So long. I give them five seconds, and at the end of five seconds, if they haven't picked their card, they get the immortal coil, or they get you know the worst card on the table, basically, because they just took too long. And Okay, that's your card. Let's move on. And you never really have to give out that worst card to them. It's just that that's, that's a good motivation for them. Mm-hmm. You, know, you do it to one person, and they're like, okay, we'll pick fast. You know, and they, they, that fixes that problem. But 
overall, yeah, that's that's one of the things that uh, you know it's it's a legal way to do the drafts, uh, completely fine within the uh, restrictions of the DCI. And I mean, if you're trying to convince people not to do it, you might mention obviously Magic Online doesn't work this way. Mm-hmm. Doesn't work this way. It, Pro Tours and GPs when they have the draft portion. Well, but they do different prizes. They have, you know, prizes for the yeah, entire... But maybe it'll uh, charge up people's competitive juices. Right, because that's how they would be expected to draft at those higher levels. Yeah, and you, and that, that also becomes part of the strategy. Mm-hmm. Like when people do draft walkthroughs from Magic Online, they mention that sometimes that, you know, this is a $10 card, you know, and sometimes you have to weigh whether you want that card, mm-hmm. 10 ticks, I guess. Or do you want to take a card that you'll play in your deck type of thing? Okay. And it becomes another level of strategy, strategic thinking. Great. Great. So you could throw that out as a challenge. Okay, it'll make it more difficult. Okay. Well, that takes care of a lot of the questions that we have, but we have a couple others that go a little bit more in-depth. Oh, my. Um, Let's talk a little bit about blind players because this is an audio format so hopefully if there are blind players out there they can hear us they can take in this content where it might be you know a little more difficult to get a hold of the articles that get written and the other things that get said about magic would a what blind a player be on the internet absolutely I mean, just, absolutely there's lots okay. of good adaptation uh okay, adaptive good. technology just, that, and, and accessible technology that, that'll allow blind so players to be like a voice uh activated uh voice activated or, or they can have a, a keyboard with a braille on it or the you know okay. other things like that I'm, um technology is cool oh very much so and a lot of websites have uh, accessible things where the, the computer will read the content of the website to them yeah, um, yeah through yeah. the the uh, speech recognition to text, all sorts, all sorts of great, great. It, now, is it better than the Stephen Hawking's, the old thing, the yeah, computer voice? Yeah, yeah, it's much better than that. It's improved by far. Good. Um, so, this question is really about um, if you have a blind player wants to play in a tournament, what sort of accommodations would that player need? <laughs> For instance, if that player could. Um, you know, have Braille uh, indented on their cards or indented on the front of the sleeves of their cards. Uh-huh. Um, you know, is that an acceptable modification for that player to then be able to use those? Um, and then also, what's that burden that you're placing on that player's opponents for them to be very clear about the game state and telling them what's on the battlefield or telling them, you know, what they're tapping to do certain things? Um, and yeah. would it, you know, is it possible to have a sighted friend of that player, you know, standing behind him just to make sure he's not being taken, taken advantage of. You have a judge there that needs to be minding the match more closely uh, because of the communication issues that can come up, all sorts of issues that come up with this. What, what are your thoughts on, on accommodating players like this? My mind is blown. Lots of possibilities. Okay. Well, let's just let's try, try trying to imagine how you would play magic being blind. It's, Seems like a daunting thing. It, uh, well, being blind is kind of daunting, I think. Yeah, but this is more levels of daunting, right? Well, yeah, I mean, because of the communication issues you mentioned. I mean, it is a primarily written and and writ- read sort of right. It's a visual game, it, very much so. It is because you could you can play it in complete silence, just well, looking at the cards, right? And you're dealing with spatial relationships between objects that really don't have much of a texture to them that differentiates one from the next. 
Um, and in fact, shouldn't. If they're in the library, they shall be indistinguishable from one so, to another. So you mentioned the Braille thing, right. Sean. And I, I'm assuming you want me to go back and mention Well, just, something just talk about your experience with Braille and Braille cards. Well, it's not my experience. This was just a story I heard. Okay, well, let's let's have some hearsay then. Okay, so Go in another it. card game in Legend of the Five Rings, L five R, there was a story about a player who was blind mm-hmm. and had Braille on his cards. Right now, this is printed actually on the cards themselves. I don't, I don't know if it was on the card or if it was like a special strip or whatever. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason. He, you could feel them through the back of the card as well. Okay, so it sounds like they're indented somehow. Yeah. And the story goes that the blind player was actually cheating mm. by touching the top of his library and reading the card through in, the back. In reverse. Yeah, backwards. Okay. And so he would know what he would draw, and you know, this is obviously the obvious big advantage. Absolutely. To have a free future site kind of. Mm-hmm. So you can shuffle bad cards away or know what you're drawing so you can change your strategy that turn. Right, right, right. I think someone who played the game might have actually confirmed this. I wrote about it in an article mm-hmm. a year or so ago. Okay. Well, and one other thing to consider is that if the Braille is on just the front of the cards, like if in some sort of a, a stickied-on sort of strip of Braille, or if it's indented into the sleeves. Uh, actually, I think that's how the uh, our listener here actually poses this question. And uh, the sleeves, huh? Right. And this is a uh, ah, this is actually Thomas again back back with another question. That's three questions he submitted to us. One one. Uh, he's very inquisitive. Very inquisitive. Well, great. So actually, yeah, the, uh, the the that's how we'd actually deal with that. Probably is is. You know, uh, assessing all the amount of com- you know, accommodations we'd need, um, and then also keeping in fa- in mind that we need to, you know, provide a decent amount of service to the other players in the tournament, where we can't let the tournament grind to a halt for the accommodation of a single player, probably. Um, so there's there's a, a delicate balance there, and at the same and time, you mentioned having a friend, right, and that's. I mean, that's got outside assistance problems written all over it because you've got two people essentially one playing the game and, you know, behind them and one playing the same game. It's like a, like a two on one, like two headed giant, but with only one deck, you know, against one player. I, there. I, I think you would be reasonable. You think so? And this is why, because this came up at the world series of poker. Ah, okay. there was a blind player one year, or maybe he's kept playing. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one year, he was featured prominently, prominently in the broadcast. Right, right. And he had a friend, mm-hmm. and his sole job was to describe the things that the player could not see. For example, the flop. You know, the flop is this card, this card, and this card. Right, right, right. And other, actually, other than that, other than the cards, I don't really think he needed to say much. Well, you because can say the, the reactions, describe the reactions of the players to the other cards that they drew, or is that no, just a no. natural disadvantage he's got to deal yeah, with? Yeah, Because everything else, like if a player bets, you know, he's going to say what the amount is and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I, I think he was there just to uh, read the cards. Yeah, it's not like they're going to make the deck braille for him, because that yeah. would be pretty awkward. And, yeah, and to whisper his own whole cards, obviously. Of course. Okay, so WSOP did it for, for a blind player. Um, so if this person is sufficiently trained and or 
notified of what his responsibilities are, I think just saying, like, your opponent played a forest, he tapped the forest, he's played Noble Hierarch. Uh-huh. You know, that kind of stuff. I, I could see that being okay. Okay. And again, okay. like, you want to make sure you say what not to say, like the strategic stuff. Right. Just, just describe the, the cards. Well, and what you're describing is somebody who can provide in-game information about the rules and things that are going on and the, the actual actions being taken without providing strategic information. That's one of the main things that we as judges do. I mean, we, when we answer a question, we can't provide strategic information in that answer or we strive or do our best to prevent ourselves from doing that. Um, it's, I mean, we wouldn't want to have necessarily a judge assigned to that player because, again, that's a, that would, you know, it's not something that we can provide to all the players. Mm-hmm. It's one of, the, one of the other tests that we use in terms of deciding whether or not we can accommodate something. Is, is this a service that we could willingly apply to everybody? Um, but at the same time, we've, you know, there are other judges that have written a lot about this. Um, if you go to the Judge Center and to the article archive there, uh, you'll find uh, the author, his name escapes me now. David Lyford Smith. Okay. And DLS. He, and he wrote an article about accommodating disabled players. So I definitely encourage you to read up on that a bit more. Um, and, and yeah, that's, I guess that's, that's how we deal with that. Um, if you have other information or want to contribute to that discussion at all, I'd be happy to take your emails too. At, well, and also when you have any other judge questions for us, uh, not just about rules, but also about how people interact in the tournaments or anything like that. Um, of course, send us your emails at Ricky. Is that my only job here is to save the email? Ah, oh, fine. I'll do it. I can do it. No, it's judge judgecast at gmail.com. There we go. Got a nice echo there. Yeah, there we go. That, that's awesome. Okay. Do we have anything else? Um, a couple other questions, but actually, wow. yeah, lots of questions here, but I think these are actually probably best left to, um, well, more references to articles because getting into them would probably take forever. Um, for instance, we had one question here that says, tell me about layers. <laughs> That's it. Tell me about layers. Well, no, the question is really, um, it's like, tell me about the executive branch, Sean. <laughs> uh, where shall I start? Okay. Well, a- actually, let's, let me read one question here. We can kind of the answer. The executive branch is my favorite branch of the U.S. government, by the way. Well, you know, right now, the legislative branch is one of my favorite branches. Oh, because... yeah, let's not get into okay. that. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, let's, let's talk to – let's read one of the questions here that we have. Um, and this is about the layers. The person who gave us this layers question, um, his name is Dave Robinder or Robinder or, well, you can figure yeah, it out. Now you're mispronouncing uh-huh. names. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How do you like it now? I was just doing that because so you wouldn't feel bad. Now that the hat is on the other thumb. <laughs> I don't Is that even a saying? Uh, probably not. Something <laughs> about shoes and feet, I think. Okay. <laughs> what did I say? <laughs> the hat is on the other thumb. Wow, I must be doing, like, thumb puppet theater or something in my spare time. Got that on my mind. Whatever you do in your spare time is your business, Ricky. (laughs) So Dave here is from Colorado Springs. I'm guessing that's in Colorado. And (laughs) he's been playing for most of a year now, and he has a pretty good handle on things overall. One thing that stymies him is the whole layering thing when it applies effects to cards. So he wants us to explain how the various layers work 
and how to correctly calculate the power and toughness of a creature. Wow. That's kind of a big topic, so I'm not going to get into it right now, but I think we should actually consider this as a longer really? longer form discussion. I well, would he has send him a link to Justin Obdenis' article. Well, you, you would do that. Well, in fact, he, I have. I've yeah. done that already. But he, he won Article of the Year for Rules article. Right. Actually defeated me. Because I, I was uh, – Was I, yours or- it, it was listed under the rules. I kind of thought it should have been other right. other sort of rule thing. It's not quite rules. It was a but, setup. Oh, well, that's fine. So anyway, yes, uh, that article is, again, on the Judge Center. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with the article archive there, as And why judges, would they be? It's buried. It is kind of buried. The only way I can find it is because I have it bookmarked. Right, or if you Google it. Um, okay. Uh, Magic Judge Article Archive, basically. Um, and you know, put the uh, the other Google food trick is to put site and colon wizards dot com so it'll only give you the results from wizards dot com. Wow. That. So when you have that that article archive up and you go into this article on the layers, um, let's let's actually take that and apply it to um, the example that uh, our friend here Dave gives us. Crag Puka is a two four creature. Let's say I have Marshall's Anthem on the battlefield, where it gives all his creatures plus one, plus one. And I tap an island to activate Kragpuka's ability to switch its power and toughness. In response to that, my opponent plays Disfigure, which gives the creature minus two, minus two. Mm -hmm. To which I respond with a giant growth. Target creature gets plus three, plus three. What's the final power and toughness of this creature and why? Okay. Okay. So, that's the, he says, if that example doesn't work, feel free to give him another, but let's just use that example. So, he's got a 2-4, and he's giving it plus one, plus one from a Marshall's Anthem. So, that's a 3-5. Okay, then he's switching it. It's a 5-3. And then he's giving it minus two, minus two. Okay. And he's giving it plus three, plus three. Well, that's easy, because the right. pluses and minuses are all equal. Right. Well, now we have them being applied by two different two different sorts of abilities. We have spells that are applying them at instant speed, and we also have a static ability from an enchantment in play. Does that make any difference? Not anymore. Okay. There you go. So, um, and what do we talk? Let's talk also about the two-four uh, creature here that's being switched. Yeah. Let's let's get Marshall's so, anthem out of there. So for the a switching is last. Okay. Switching always applies last. But in this case, it doesn't really matter. Because like I said, the bonuses are all equal. Right. So flip-flopping it, it's still getting plus three on one and plus three on the other. Sure, sure. Okay, well, let's, let's take, take our Crag Puka here and say that, uh, you know, it's a 2-4. And I'll pay the amount of mana I need to switch its power and toughness. And in response to that, you play... Mm, Howl from Beyond. Howl from Beyond, that's less than... You play Nameless Inversion on it. Give it plus three, minus three. Okay. Okay? So now it's a 2-4 that I'm about to switch it, and it's going to get plus three, minus three. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of players would think, well, now that the two's on the back end, and you're giving it the minus three on that end, it's going to get into the negative toughness range. Sure. So... But that doesn't actually work that way. Because the flopping is last. Right. So instead we take the original numbers, the two, four. We go plus three and minus three on the one side Makes and the other side. Six, a five, five. One, a five, one. Okay. Plus three. Take a two, four. Give it plus three, minus three. And then you switch it. You end up with a five, one. Okay. So basically having that change will not matter. 
having having that. But then you flop it at the end. Right, you flop so it it's at a the one end. Five. Right, and I'm sure that all of this has probably confused people a little bit more. Which than, is why we shouldn't do this in an audio. <sighs> That's why that article was so awesome. So, <laughs> um, and for for those of you, I, I will actually, as we publish this article, or as we publish this episode. I will put a link to that article on the on our Facebook group there, um, so that way you can man more see love for Justin. Uh, he deserves it. He worked hard on that. You know, it's it's actually a really great article. Lots of good examples of the cards that fit into each layer with their effects, um, and it really provides a really good framework for understanding how cards interact uh, within the layer system. I, I really think he did a great service uh, to the community to bring that bring that out. Okay. Um, oh, we have another one here. Ooh, another question. Um, Ooh. Also from Dave. Um, and this is, actually, he just wants to tell us about a Jedi mind trick that happened. Um, so it's a player playing scape shift combo. And the player is looking. I already know where this is going. Well, if he, if he can't pull off the win on this turn, the scape shift player is going to die. And so he looks at his board, six lands in play, no, ways to, no way to play another land this turn. And he taps his four man and says, and and declares that he is playing scape shift. And his opponent says, "Well, that's the game," and scoops up with only six lands. Of course, that would be zero damage from Valakut because there are not five other mountains. So unless he has prismatic omen, oh, which would make uh, the Valakut itself the sixth mountain. Oh, see now you've just totally taken this tech to a totally different level. I'm I you've convinced me now. You didn't know about this? No, of course I do. But I'm just okay. saying that, you know, that's trying to be sarcastic without becoming oh. off like a jerk. Oh. So You are a jerk. Oh, man. Why don't you mention that I'm single again, jerk? Well, you've already mentioned it, so okay. of course I won't. So I'm the jerk now. <laughs> <laughs> ah, that's why we love you, Ricky. Because I'm single <laughs> or I'm a jerk? <laughs> I'm going to shut up when I'm mad here. Okay. Well, so yeah, you scooped too early. Yep, too that, bad. That's like all Jedi mind tricks. Right. Should have waited for Luis to show you the tendrils. Uh huh. That's right. And for the, I, I should explain that story too, and that is that Luis Scott Vargas entered a vintage tournament. Uh, He's playing like Grim Long or Pitch Long or some long deck, the right. Storm deck with tendrils of agony as the kill. Right. Except that he forgot to put tendrils of agony in the deck. Yeah, in his sideboard. Right. So, and so he would the first time he did it. <laughs> He didn't even realize it because the guy just scooped. Right. And then he looked at his sideboard later and realized it wasn't there. So for the rest of the day, he'd storm, storm, storm. Okay, I got two black and two other floating. Uh, I played ten spells. I'm going to Burning Wish. And the guy's like, all right, you got it. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> right. And he, he actually got all the way through that tournament, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Win it. I think he yeah. split in the finals probably. With probably. Web. <laughs> Webb should have played it out, obviously, because right, right. he would have known by that point. No win condition in the whole <laughs> deck. That's awesome. All right. Well, I think with that, we have hit um, quite a bit of time here. We're up to just over an hour, maybe an hour and 15 minutes here. So I think we've answered all, most of the questions that we have posed to us. And my rabbit is chewing something in the background here. So maybe you'll hear that rattling. Maybe you won't. Ricky, do you have anything else to add before we sign off? Didn't you want to talk about your PTQ? I mean, I you talked mean about my, my weekend. You mean my not PTQ? Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, day was destroyed by a migraine. Uh, did not work out so well. So um, it was too bad. Well, I haven't played in the PTQ. I looked back at my play history. Uh-huh. I have not played in the PTQ since June of 2008. That is a long, long time to not play in a PTQ. Yeah, I, f- I'm, I totally feel deprived. So yeah, I need to go out there and hopefully next season we'll have you know a more more opportunities for me to get out there and actually be in a PTQ, but I did not make it, uh, to, to the, to the site, uh, which was, it, that's the, that was a more aggravating thing. I think also is that if I'd been planning on driving a long ways, I would have at least felt like, Oh, well, I saved myself to drive by not going, but this but is at, in Sacramento. Right, this is at the home store that I play F and M at every, every week. This is at great escape games. So I was like, well, that's yeah, such a disappointment. Uh, more disappointing also was that another judge, Michael Sohn, uh, from the Bay Area, made top eight with a deck that was strikingly similar to the one I was planning on running. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, granted, Michael is a very good player. I'm not saying at all that if I'd played, I would have done as well as he had, but we had a very similar list. And uh, Sword of Light and Shadow was such tech, I was hoping that it would take people by surprise. And with his, Michael did take people by surprise with it there. What, um, what is it tech against? Well... It, Surprisingly, because people have been adding a lot more white to their zoo decks for like Lone Lion instead Night of Curdy, Night of the Reliquary. Yes. Right. It's it's really an amazing piece of tech. And especially when you couple it with Stoneforge Mystic. You know, Stoneforge mm. Mystic isn't just for standard anymore. Is Merit Lage uh, black? Merit Lage is black, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so you've got plenty of really interesting And then it gains you three life. Right. And you're also bouncing things like from your graveyard back to your hand. Um, what tech is this a zoo deck? Uh, yeah, his was a zoo deck where you, you throw you throw sort of light and shadow in there, and uh, a couple of Stoneforge Mystics, and probably a jet or two, and yeah, you're good to go. All right. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. Um, so, so judges doing well again. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he, I think he lost in the quarterfinals of top eight. Um, he lost to Michael Hetrick, who, who won, won the tournament. Won the tournament. Congrats to him. Mm-hmm. I think this may be his first pro tour. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's another one of those guys that has been grinding for a long time. Right, right. And you're always happy to see someone break through like that. Definitely. Definitely. Hopefully he'll make good use of it. Mm-hmm. So with that, I think we're ready to sign off, Ricky. What do you think? Okay. Okay. Let well, me put on my scowly face for this. <laughs> well, because this is Sean Kenanese. I keep it fair. And Ricky Hayashi, I keep it fun. Thanks for listening. 